Welcome to Being Human. This week, I'm delighted to say I have not one, but two guests. I have Mary and Tom Poppendick. They are authors and teachers with a big interest in lean and especially how we apply that to the software development world. Welcome to the show. Good to be here. Indeed. <laughs> okay. So I guess we should start with this word lean. And for those, I mean, many of my audience, I'm sure are very familiar with that term, but for those who are coming to that term for the first time, perhaps we should start with some, some definitions. What do we mean by lean? And then perhaps we can get a little bit into the, to the history of that school of thinking, which you outline in, in the book I've read as prep for this uh, interview, implementing lean software development. So, so let's start with lean. So the word lean first came into our business lexicon with a book called uh, The Machine That Changed the World, The Story of Lean Production. It was published in 1990 by Womack, uh, Jones, and Roos. And um, uh, that book became a bestseller. Uh, Womack and Jones went on to found lean consulting businesses, Lean Enterprise Institute, it's called, uh, Womack in the U.S., Jones in the U.K. And um, for the whole decade of the 90s, there was a big focus on how you take operational areas like logistics, manufacturing, uh, even hospitals, and create a, uh, a, a very effective way of doing things that is competitively effective and it also creates stuff that customers really like. So that's where it came from. It is rooted in the 1980s when Japan could make cars a whole lot better than the U.S. and cheaper with less people over less time. It was, hey, how does that work? And so MIT formed an automotive industry and the book came out of their research in the 1980s. And it talked about how various concepts, uh, ways of thinking about how you do production could make it much more effective. And the fundamental concept changed the way people thought about manufacturing in the US and Europe over the decade of the late 1980s and 1990s. And today it's pretty much standard practice. In um, the uh, advent of lean fundamentally changed the entire structure of our economy. The oh, wow. evolution of the uh, just-in-time supply chain um, changed the boom and bust rhythm that had been um, bothering the economy for many decades. And yeah. <laughs> and um, that's fundamentally been smoothed out dramatically by organizations avoiding building up huge inventory and substituting huge inventory um, for huge inventory, a reliable, just enough supply to meet the actual needs that are being pulled by the market. And that pull is one of the fundamental things that has transformed first all the areas Mary mentioned and eventually software. 
Right. So it's this this shift from well, you're saying a couple of important things in there. What you're saying is had this big impact on the economy, but also, but but you're also talking about this idea of pull. Um, and okay, so perhaps we should we should start with that. So what what do we mean by pull versus push, and and how does that have an impact? Well. Um... Let's go to the soft, let's go to the uh, grocery store, okay? And if a grocery store orders the same amount of every item every week, milk, butter, you name it, just like perishable foods, that's a good one, strawberries, raspberries, all those things. Some weeks it'll be harder to get, it'll cost more, then people won't pay as much. Uh, won't want to pay as much, and if they order the same amount, it's just going to sit there and go stale. Because the demand from people coming into the store is variable, especially where things vary from season to season. So what stores do instead, and especially they do it in the area of any kind of perishable food, is that they keep a limited amount of stuff on supply, maybe a day or two's worth, and then as it disappears, they they order just enough more to keep that ma- that basic level of supply that they know they can probably get get rid of in a day or two. As people slow down their buying, the store slows down its buying of the same thing because they can see that they don't need as much to replenish and keep a day, what they thought was a day or two. A day or two is fewer things now. So they basically do replenishment based on the demand of the shoppers. That's what a pull system is. And you can see with um, any kind of perishable item that it's the only thing that makes sense because otherwise you're going to be pushing stuff in to the environment that is going to just go stale. Right. Okay. But for other things besides perishable goods, people don't think about um, how do we pull just enough. It's how do we be economical? How do we fill up all of our trucks? How do we have fewer drivers? Um, that sort of thing. And that's a push system. And in manufacturing, everything was, let's schedule everything ahead of time and then just execute the schedule. Well, things happened. You know, stuff goes wrong. And when things happen, the schedule would go haywire. And the variation from any kind of thing going wrong would propagate down the street. The idea in manufacturing in Lean was, why don't you pull each workstation from the supplying workstation? And then variation will will sort of not propagate downstream, which it does, because all you're doing in, throughout the entire plant is keeping a minimum level of inventory at every point. And when it gets uh, depleted, you pull a little more. And that slow, small movement doesn't seem efficient from a resource perspective. You have to move more stuff more frequently, but it's extremely system-wide more efficient because the system itself tends to work way better, tends to find quality problems sooner, tends to not have piles of stuff that get stale and date, tends to be producing just exactly according to the demand of the consuming station. So this whole concept moved from just a few supply chains for perishable goods into uh, the overall logistics supply chain for, uh, say, retail stores. And, and then in 
also into factories. And I'd say it's pretty much a common way of thinking about how you replenish any kind of, how you respond to any kind of a demand. The fundamental idea is that variation produces unpredictability and it compounds. It gets worse and worse the further you plan. The consequence of that is that detailed plans are unreliable. The very best detailed forward plan will be executable about 60%. You make a commitment, you'll meet about 60% of it. That's true in construction, it's true in manufacturing, it's true in staffing restaurants, it's true in almost every area where people need to work together to um, deal with complex, difficult problems, or even not so complex ones. The consequence of that is that pull enables people to work together to solve problems much more effectively than push does. And that applies not only to material things like um, building things, but it also applies to um, creative work that you need to have a environment where there's an aspiration, a goal, a purpose, um, where people can be pulled towards achieving something rather than being pushed and told exactly what to do. Mm. Very few people really enjoy being told what to do. Most of us prefer strongly to aspire to have an autonomous um, means of reaching an aspiration. Right. And you, you talk about that in chapter six of implementing lean software development, which is about people and this, and if there's an implication for designing a pull system in terms of the belief that we have in people, right? There's a requirement to have a particular belief in people in order for this to work. Could you, could you expand on that? I think in a retail supply chain, it's not a belief in people. It's just a huh. observation that pull works. But when Tom is talking about um, engagement of people in, solve, in, in solving company problems, that's where I think uh, belief that people um, have certain aspirations and want to do their best and don't have to be either bribed or shoved or commanded to make stuff happen. They're much more likely to put their whole heart into things when they uh, really believe in the purpose of what they're doing when they think it's something bigger than themselves, when they can become better at what they're doing, when they can um, make some decisions for themselves about how things are done um, or work with a small team and have the group work together to figure out how to solve the problem rather than somebody writing down a whole long list of stuff and handing it to you and saying, here are your tasks, go for it. And when you're done with this task in two hours, come back and I'll give you another one. So that's not particularly, I mean, you can't really do something like that for year in and year out and have fun. At least lots of people can. Right. And there may have been a time when uh, that worked economically. Um, but as uh, 
for, for a certain situation where there's low complexity and low variability, but as soon as we have complexity uh, and high variability, that breaks down as a, as a way of doing well, it. Well, you know, when I was in a manufacturing plant, which you would think would be just to tell people what to do, we found that the plant worked way better if people were really interested in what we were trying to accomplish and cared a lot about solving all of the problems that they encountered that got in their way of, of having things smoothly, smooth flow smoothly, excuse me, and, and having uh, packing out the stuff the customer really wanted and paying attention to quality. And when people were asked to do those kinds of things, they really responded. So it doesn't matter if it's a manufacturing plant or, you know, T-Mobile has in the U.S. formed uh, these teams called Team of Experts. It's about 50 people that are in a single location. They're customer service reps, the people who take the phone calls when you call in with a problem. And this group with a leader and, and, and sort of coaches for the call center and some technical experts are responsible for the happiness and the long-term profit and loss of about 120,000 customers in a single area. It may not be the same area that they're in, but they know where their, their customers live and they know if there's an emergency and they know if something happens. And they have found dramatic improvements in every single metric that they measure as a company uh, from less call time, less um, more, uh, less turnover of customers, less turnover of employees, because these people who you would say, oh, you just tell them how to answer a telephone call and have them limit their handle time. Boring job. You give them a challenge and have them work together as a competent team to figure out how to make customers happy and improve the company, uh, the, the profitability of that customer group, and they have amazing results, just amazing results. So, I don't think it's it's I don't think we should get into our head that it's okay for some people to do boring repetitive jobs. Right. <laughs> right. I wasn't suggesting that. I was just asking well, I was I was questioning my mind whether one can make the case that in certain scenarios it could be more economical, even if it's less humane. I haven't found it yet. <laughs> right. Okay, no fair point. Fair enough. Um and I like the stat that you quote that the the, the in the book on page five, you, you talk about how you might get a, a fif 15 to 25% reduction in cost through economies of scale, which you might achieve through uh, push type systems. Um, but the 20 to 35% of, of costs um, are down to variability and it's pull systems that allow us to reduce the variability. So in pure economic terms on that basis, this is a much more effective way to go. Well, the other part about pull systems besides reducing variability is that um, when Toyota first started pull systems in the 1950s and 60s, they discovered that the quality of their product went up and went up dramatically and went up quickly. And that's because in a pull system, you don't accumulate bad stuff and discover that this piece right here or that thing over there is doing something wrong some weeks later where you've built up a bunch of bad stuff, you effectively have immediate inspection almost as soon as something happens by the downstream process. And so the quality improved dramatically and quickly when you switch to a pull system. And 
I don't know if you can say there's an economic value to that. There's massive economic value to high quality products. And the ability to have a high degree of confidence that your products are high quality and that when something goes wrong, you find it rapidly is extremely important. Economic. Right. And when you talk about that inspection built in, what, what do you mean by that? Like, Well, let's go to software. In, in the world ahead. of software, it has a very simple meaning. Always be able to prove that what you've done so far is what you meant to. Always right. be able to prove that the code you've written so far actually behaves the way you've designed it to behave. And that um, is a, a meaning that is applicable not only to software used by people, but also to embedded software. At every stage, every minute actually, you be able to demonstrate that all the tests that you have implemented so far are passing. And that is a fundamental discipline of modern software development. Um, the, oh, go ahead. Well, I want to continue on that. Some decades ago, um, accounting was like sort of more guesswork than anything. And then came along this concept of double entry bookkeeping, which moved accounting into a era of, we were very confident in our books because we've entered it in two different ways, added up, subtracted it, totaled it, two different spots and they match, exactly, okay? Um, we have complex systems and software. And it turns out that what's happened in the last decade is that we figured out the moral equivalent of double entry bookkeeping, okay? Instead of having one software system, we have two software systems. This one is a description in people-readable language of what it's supposed to do. This one is the actual implementation of that. And in between, we have a test framework that can make sure that this code over here does what these, uh, oh, I want to say, uh, executable description of what the code is supposed to do says. And when they match, um, and they can ma be matched a lot frequently because it's all code, then you know that what you're supposed to do, which we can read, is what the code does because they match. And that whole concept of being sure at all times that the system does what it is supposed to do is tricky because we're talking about very complex systems. But there are several ways that have been developed over the last, say, 10, 20 years of making sure that we are able to automatically know that the system does what it's supposed to do rather than have a whole bunch of people taking a second look and hopefully finding things. Right. And uh, there's an anecdote in your book from uh, Nancy Van Sh Sh Schoenewert. <laughs> right. Nancy Van Schoenewert. <laughs> Nancy Van Schoenewert. So who needs a, a tracking system when you've only got two diff defects? I mean, that, that made me smile, right? I mean, <clears throat> for anybody who, who works around right. it, the whole, the, the sort of the, the, the mind uh, F. UCK of JIRA and tickets and what do we do and how do we solve it? When you've only got two defects, you need to work, you can do it on a piece of paper, right? I mean, I thought that was just a brilliant way of expressing uh, the, the, just, just the, the pure benefit of 
taking this sort of built-in quality approach. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but hard in my experience because people want stuff now, don't they? They want stuff out of the door. They don't want people to spend the time. Uh, that's just no excuse. Step by step. To no, make excuse sure me for don't. interrupting you. <laughs> oh, it's when lovely. you know what you're doing is right, you move way faster. Right. Just like in, in a factory that can always make good stuff, it constantly produces. Or take the Empire State Building. It was built in like about 18 months from idea to 85 stories. It had the best safety record at the time. Because why? Because when people fall off the building, it slows everything down. You know, accidents are a problem. So when you do not have defects in your code, I'm sorry, but you deliver way faster. Uh, you don't have built-up defects that you have to figure out. You don't have uh, strange unintended consequences. You have to troubleshoot. Massive amounts of time is saved by knowing for sure that you have to do stuff. It is true that more code exists, but the code is, is just like bookkeepers. They have, you know, two sets of books. And this is good, yes? This is good because we know the books are now right. And I don't see them saying, oh, if only we kept one set of books, we could go faster. Ron, if we kept one set of books, we would have no idea how accurate we were. And it's the same with software. Uh, just because we have two descriptions of what we're trying to do and they matched against each other doesn't slow us down. That's, uh, that's, that's wrong. That doesn't happen that way. You actually, it doesn't take, I mean, there's some learning curve time but it doesn't take long before you are definitely moving faster when you have a good test framework. Right. And you talk in the book about people who've worked in this way, find it so difficult if they're then exposed to the other way of working without this, how difficult yes. it can be to go kind of backwards. backwards. Oh, it's yeah. really hard. Right. The, another important aspect of the, um, whole process is not just internal that you always know that you, what you're doing is what you intended. You're not the only party involved. The people who are going to benefit from the work you're doing, as you alluded to, are also critical. And people who are going to benefit are not notorious for being eager to wait forever to get something that will make their life better. So rapid delivery of the right thing is critical. When you make fewer mistakes during implementing, you tend to be able to deliver more rapidly, but delivering the right thing is even more critical. And that's where the ability to implement something very rapidly and get feedback from the market, from the uh, people or the systems that are going to benefit from your work is absolutely critical. Um, the traditional ways of thinking about how effective you are at doing that are totally broken. People tend to think that you're good if you are resource efficient. If everybody and all of your equipment is busy all the time, if that's good. That used to be thought to be true in factories where people tried to keep equipment 
busy, producing, spinning, buzzing, 100% of the time. And that is what led to the periodic catastrophes of oversupply and um, layoffs and booms and busts. That's not the way factories are run anymore. Right now, they don't focus on um, keeping equipment busy. They focus on producing exactly the right amount at the right time. And they usually have some equipment that's not busy because you can't adjust your capacity to perfectly match a demand, which is going to be varying quite a bit. In the um, modern way of thinking, the metric is not resource efficiency. Resource efficiency produces disaster. And it has. We have decades and decades of disasters from focusing primarily on resource efficiency in this age. Instead, we should be looking at what um, this is lean book by Ms. Nicholas Modig and Per Angstrom um, call flow efficiency. Flow efficiency is measured by how much calendar time elapses actually working on a product divided by how long the people who are going to benefit have to wait. In short, how rapidly can you work with the people to deliver a effective solution? Flow efficiency is effectively the critical metric today for how well your practices are working. Right. Right. And, and, is it, and when you talk about flow efficiency and that being the important metric, it, it's not about having a target for it, right? I mean, you talk, you talk, you talk in the book about Dem, Dem, Deming and, and his 14 points and 11, and point 11 is eliminate numerical quotas. So is that something <laughs> to be measured but not targeted on, right? Well, okay. Um... So if you think about it, what you're measuring is from the time somebody asks for stuff until the time they get it, what percentage of that time do I actually spend working on it? Now that, my observation is that when customers request modest size things from software team, they, customers kind of have a rough guess. This is about a day's worth of work, or perhaps this is going to take about a week. And they're usually not so far off. And the customers might give you twice that amount of time to actually deliver it before they start getting annoyed at how slow you are. So if something takes a week, maybe you get two weeks. If something takes a day, you might get a half a week. And so in, a, in that sense, there is a mental target in the minds of your customers of how long something ought to take. And if you have all sorts of built-in wait times and priority setting times and all this sort of stuff that slows it down, that's a bad process. So my, I actually have a rough target in there. And my rough target is um, flow efficiency should be about 50% if you want to have happy customers, 40% anyway. Because that's as much time as people who ask for something are likely to be interested in giving you to deliver it. Right. Um, but it's not a performance metric. 
Okay. It's a data point. Just as like the velocity of a team is sometimes measured and people look at that as a performance metric. That's not a performance metric. It's a capacity metric. It says how much stuff this team can produce over a period of time. Very important because you do not want to overload the team or you will slow everything down. So uh, capacity metrics are really important, but they should never be considered performance metrics. So similarly, when you think about um, flow efficiency, it's an interesting data point, but it's not a performance metric. It's a how good is my, it's the performance of the process metric. It's how, how well does my process perform in delighting customers? Right. But you, we, we, we shouldn't be handing bonuses out based on whether people look at it. Nope. Shouldn't be handing bonuses out anyway, ever, but that's another thought. <laughs> well, no, no, that's, 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 that's going to be controversial for some, potentially for some people listening. Okay. Why should we never have any bonuses, Mary? Because bonuses mean that if you expect me to do really good work, you have to pay me extra. Instead of, if I show up for work, I am interested in and want to do my best. And you trust that that's true. And if it's not true, there's something missing, but it's not money. It's almost never money. It's something else. And by trying to substitute in money for what it is really missing, whether it's a lack of purpose, whether it's a lack of me working to my highest potential, whether it's a lack of autonomy, people are just telling me what to do, um, those are the things that really frustrate people and trying to pay them more is not, is generally not going to do particularly much unless they are completely sole players that can only accomplish the objective all by themselves. But when you start compensating individuals who work as part of the team, you actually drive down the productivity of the, the, the ability of the team to work together at the, their best efforts and deliver something. If you use bonuses. If you use bonuses. Individual bonus. bonuses in a, an environment which requires collaboration are, have a negative effect. A bonus is extrinsic motivation. And it, there's a lot of research in the field that shows that extrinsic motivation, even if it has a short-term beneficial effect, overall destroys the effectiveness of an organization. As if collaboration is required to do good work. Intrinsic motivation is what works. Um, and intrinsic motivation is not something that you give somebody it is something that you create a context where it can happen, where people can be self-motivated. And we've been alluding throughout the interview to the factors that drive intrinsic motivation. And um, the popular presentation of that from Dan Pink is that people need autonomy to make decisions, make choices within a clearly defined set of constraints. They need to be able to get better and better at what they do, mastery, and they need to have relatedness or purpose 
where it's something that they care about. And caring about things is very critical. If people don't care, if it's simply something they do because they're told and their only motivation is paycheck, then they'll go through the motions, they'll get their paycheck, but nobody's going to be very happy. They won't be happy or proud of their work. The people that receive the output of their efforts will um, probably not be very satisfied, and um, it just doesn't work very well. Mm. Yeah, no, I'm not familiar with that research. And even even for solo players, interesting. I read I read some, some research about artists, individual artists, mm-hmm. and they had artists who were commissioned, right? You know, do this piece of art and we'll pay you X, versus individual artists who just expressed from non-commissioned work. Mm-hmm. And they looked across the piece and they found that the quality of art for non-commissioned work was much higher. So what a surprise, <laughs> right? So. So it's a, so it's, so it, to take your example, Mary, it may even be that for solo workers, in some cases, uh, bonuses don't work. In true, indeed. Um, but but it, it yes, and, and even when we say, oh, well, what about the banking sector? I had one of the the the, 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 the head of external affairs for Handelsbanken, who are a Swedish bank, um, ah. who have no bonuses, and they're one of the best performing banks in the exactly. Um, not, although I should say they're not, they're not into trading and investment banking. It's a retail bank, but still, um, an interesting counterpoint nonetheless. Um, yes, but it doesn't matter if you're even into trading, you cannot optimize trading as a single individual. You need tools, you need systems, you need information and, uh, working with people who are going to help you create good tools and sources of good information means you're in a collaborative world. And how collaborative are your teammates going to be if you're the one that gets the bonus and they aren't? Right. That's scary. So if you need help from others, um, it's really better to inspire people in, from the inside rather than from pay because one of the worst parts about a bonus system is all of the difficult, massive time that managers have to spend figuring out how to make the bonus system fair and failing consistently all the time because somebody will always be unhappy and feel it's unfair. Right. And I can attest to the non-collaboration amongst, I dated a, a banker once and she, uh, if she ever got it, she wasn't was very good at getting in on time. And uh, her, her teammates used to tell her boss if she, she arrived late. So she arrived late, but before her, her boss wasn't around, her teammates would tell her boss that she'd been in late. Right. So that's the kind of that's the kind of culture it bred because it was zero sum, right? There was one there was one bonus pool that she had to split between her boss and her colleague. Oh, it was just horrific. I don't know how she, how she <laughs> um, not very well. Not very well. Um, the other thing, so, so there's a, there's a couple of other things that I found really interesting in the book. Um, one was this idea of economic companies versus rivers. Can you? Expand on that. So that comes from Arnie Degas' book. Right. Um, well, if the most important thing for a company is to deliver shareholder value, not they don't uh, uh, the, the the companies that make a lot of sense and the ones that last over time are the ones that care about their employees, the ones that care about their communities, and the ones that care about their 
uh, investors equally, if not, and their customers. So you have to believe that long-term, understanding what's going on, caring about my customers, is going to create a very good long-term advantage for my company. And instead, we have created since about the mid-1970s, this myth that the most important thing, the only thing a company is there for, is to increase shareholder value. That's pretty much crazy, okay? It's just really dumb. And it leads to very bad behavior on the part of companies and also very short lives on the part of companies because short-term decisions are the kind of thing you think about when you're looking at quarterly results for shareholders. The river companies, the ones that stay around and meander and maybe go and do different things and sometimes become rushing rivers and sometimes little brooks, but they they consistently move forward. Maybe they change their strategy. Maybe they do some other things, but they have some underlying principles. They're the ones that survive because they're thinking about way more than the next quarter. They're thinking about, you know, getting all the way to the ocean. And so the, those are the companies that think more about what's going to happen five years, 10 years, 15 years from here. How do we be prepared for that? Um, you'll find, for example, that um, it's one of the characteristics of Toyota, very, very long-term thinking. It's one of the characteristics of Amazon's CEO, fundamentally very long-term thinking, not even within the next few years, but What's going to happen 10 years from now? I know that my um, shipping program costs the company a ton of money, but I got to believe, and this is Jeff Bezos in 2004, that 10, 15 years from now, I'm going to have a whole lot more customers because people love this. Guess what? It's 10, 15 years from now. It's a whole lot more customers because it was right. It was way more about creating stuff that customers love than it was worrying about shareholder value over even a year. And so the, I think the, um, the river companies are the ones that have a long term. They think about moving over time instead of short term. Like I'm a little pond and all I think about is, you know, how do I be, how do I make this pond bigger? Hmm. The critical thing here is why are you in business? Many organizations, the ones that don't live very long, are in business to make money. That's their primary purpose. They happen to have strategies for this line of business or that line of business. And the criteria for goodness is how much money does it make? In contrast, long-lived companies like Toyota are in business or make money to stay in business so they can achieve their corporate purpose. And their purpose is not to make money. Their purpose is to impact the world in a way that they believe is positive. Uh, the reducing emissions, giving people high quality transportation. Um, creating good jobs. Creating good jobs for their uh, employees. Um, and as critical components of that, the investment is not just in uh, returns for shareholders, but the investment is in um, growing their people, in um, helping their people learn how to work better together, to design better products, and um, the whole uh, mastery of the role that 
each individual person, all the way from the people on the factory floor to the executives, get better and better at what they're doing with as much autonomy as possible to achieve the corporate purpose. Right. Right. And I can see how that philosophy fakes down into the, the software practices we were talking about before. Because if you're investing in built-in quality, in the ability to, to automate your, your testing, your double-entry system for your quality, for, for your software right from the start, you're, you're thinking long-term. You're thinking, I want, I want, I want this, this piece of software to, to continue to work in the years to come. I want to be able to change it and adapt it as I go forward in yep. the years to come, right? I mean, am I right there? Am I... Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. But I, I want to bring up something that we've been concentrating on in the last few years even more than that. And that is, um, if you think about software development, it is a process of creating a, a product, which means it's a process of learning what are good things to make and what are good ways to make it. And so it's a combination of uh, some great technical advance has allowed some customer frustration to now be dressed in a different, more interesting manner because of new technology. And for up until about 2000, the companies had this idea that the way you do software is to write some requirements and then hand it over to a team and have them code it. And then you test it, make sure it meets the requirements and then you deploy it. That's not software anymore. And that's not the way software has happened since the companies that um, started up in the Internet age, you know, the Googles and Amazons and those kinds of companies started, and they started thinking about software in an entirely different manner. They thought about software as uh, something produced by a team of people, uh, small teams generally, who have a good understanding of the market problem, good understanding of the technology, and as a group, they run experiments and learn what works, both technically and from a point of view of customers. So there is no business in IT. That's an obsolete concept. Doesn't doesn't exist in really good companies because they understand that developing software that works with customers is a team sport, you might say, And that team needs to deal directly with customers and directly with technology and within the constraints of what their particular job is, they need to be able to um, make decisions and decide what to do for themselves instead of having some outsiders come in and tell them what to do. So the early days in the 2000s to 2010 A lot of agile development was how to make this way of doing things, writing requirements and and executing them more efficient. But in the last decade, it's been different. It's been how do we get rid of that process and how do we have a process where whole teams solve whole problems? And um, the way to do that was pioneered in the around 2000 to 2006, 8, 10 by some of the uh, big internet companies, but it's moved now to most companies think about software as a small group solving, constantly running experiments, usually 
into a customer base with software that can figure out with a team that can figure out with deployments and feedback, what's the best thing to do? How's the best way to use this technology? What should we be doing next? So the team is, is not being given tasks to do. They're being given whole problems to solve with metrics of, that are outcome-based rather than metrics that are based on how much stuff did you do that we told you to do. And the outcome-based metrics are the things that are important to the organization. And then the team is trying to figure out how to make those important things come about as a group with enough independence because of the boundaries that they're working within that they can make their own decisions as a group, as a fairly small group usually. Right. Which, which actually brings us right back to that initial idea on the, on the manufacturing line of, of, a, of, a, of a small team solving their problems, trained in the scientific method you talk about, so you're yep. describing this community of scientists as, as their work. Yeah. Right. That's, I, I love the way you've painted that picture. Yeah. Um, and you also talk in the book about how we should expose developers to the financial imp- implications, right? So, so expose them to that top-level business outcome that they're chasing and, and have hey, that focus. If customer service reps can worry about how to manage a P&L and the happiness of their customers, so can software engineers. Mm. If T-Mobile's customer service reps can pull that off, so can any smart team of people that uh, does software engineering. Absolutely. So we really can expect teams to be targeting outcomes, business outcomes, rather than um, something that somebody else decided might have an impact. Why not just give the team the impact that's supposed to be changed rather than the list of some other people's ideas about what might create an impact? Right. And that is such an important idea because so much in the, the, the lean agile conversation, we get caught up in how we should design our, you know, our boards on the wall and what, <laughs> and what systems, infrastructure systems we use and, and, and what the role descriptions of, of the different team members ought to be. And it, it gets kind of so caught up in that minutiae of the, of the work system that we, we so often lose that, that part. That's such an important you know, part. That's- there, there is no prescription for that because if you have small independent teams acting as independent agents, they get to design their own process. They get to figure out what, what is the best way for them to track their work. And it should not be outsiders coming in saying, here, great tool, you got to use it. If you take a look at the two pizza teams that, that Bezos instituted at Amazon in around 2001, 2002, something like that, He basically said, I believe that independent agents are the only way to expand the the uh, uh, the ability of the company and grow it for to a very large size. Everything that's tightly coupled is going to be too complex. So he created a concept of small teams that had whole problems and responsible for business of uh, uh, fitness function, which included business results and their ability to work with their consumer and supplying services. And, you know, AWS is built on that, those kind of teams. And it's about a $25 billion company right now and doesn't show any signs of getting too big. Um, and it's, beca- it's because these teams are given real problems. 
not a process, not here's how you do your wall. Here's your group. Here are the constraints. We're going to measure outcomes. You figure it out. And I'm sure that's music to the ears of so many people listening who, who are stuck in a team where they're being spoon fed what to do. But uh, yes. one way to think about the shift that's occurring is that we're shifting from a hierarchical, somebody at the top decides what to do and delegates execution to more of an urban planning type situation in a city, which is the most successful organization scales much larger than companies do. It's a collection of autonomous agents that work together, many systems, subsystems, making semi-autonomous decisions are delivering us a place to live and thrive that is far better in many aspects than what we had when um, a hierarchical top-down way of deciding what to do was in place. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. It's that, well, I, I don't know how familiar you are with Dave Snowden and his work and complexity. Oh, yes. The, the enabling constraint idea, right? Yeah. That we give, yeah. And I can see the, the, the metaphor there with urban planning, right? There's some guidelines, there's some planning rules, but... Yeah, there's zoning. Yeah, the zoning, right. Yeah. Although, I mean, I, it would feel remiss of me not to, because I get, I get the Amazon as an example. And of course, AWS, Amazon Web Services, has, have, an example, of course, been massively successful. But my exposure to their logistics centers, it does feel <laughs> not like uh, not like a place of or, or, autonomous teams. Uh, figure so out. look at AWS as opposed to logistics. I like mm. to think of AWS as a separate entity. Mm. They don't have logistics centers, by the way, unless they have stuff to deal with their data centers. And as a model, I think it's pretty interesting. Um, how you deal with a, uh, a people-focused operational area is pretty much classically. Lean in an operational area like logistics or like manufacturing or like something like that is what's applied in a fulfillment center. Lean in a, a sense of product development is what's applied in a company like AWS. Right, but I'm just saying, I don't, I don't think those logistics centers are necessarily, uh, you know, fulfilling all of the lean philosophy. And that's what I'm saying. But, you know, we've heard the bad, the press and... Yes. Those are <laughs> To some of those centers. We don't attempt to defend that. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, we, yeah, I, 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 can, I completely get that there are different there are aspects of, the, of Bezos's philosophy that um, are inspiring, right? And definitely when he talks. Well, again, just confine your thinking to AWS. Mm. And think of the leader as Werner Vogels, who is a a really cool CTO, never even bothered to be CEO. But he's very good at understanding the technology and very good at understanding the customer problems out there and very good at figuring out how to spin up at the rate of approximately 300 a year, that's one a day, new services to service companies that, to help them do their work better. 
And and that's on Amazon Web Services, 300 services a year, new services. Yeah, they have about 4,000 now because they've been in business for about, you know, 12 years. Wow. Approximately 300 new services a year. And they're separate. They tend to be owned by a sort of product leader or a service leader, a mini CEO, and a small team. And that kind of environment is Alexa stop talking about the word <laughs> if people listening we're just turning oh, off yeah. Alexa, which is talking. <laughs> add that to your checklist yeah do you have Alexa turned off <laughs> First time, it's the first for everything. Right. Taking, we're taking Amazon's name in vain. She had to protest. Yeah, she had to speak up, didn't she? <laughs> but if you look at if you, if you look at that company, um, they have an organizational architecture and a system architecture that has set the standard for how you think about very large, massive systems um, and how they can operate in an environment which allows autonomous teams to, to, to operate independently and customers to decide what it is that they want to use. Right. And that, uh, and that brings me to something else that I found very fascinating reading the last chapter of, of your book, okay. uh, the, the journey. And, and, and you talk about two questions for people who are going on this, on this journey to lean. And I'm fully expecting the first question to be something about waste. You know, that's what we think about when we hear the, you know, the seven wastes or whatever. And, and the first question is, how do I create value in product? And the second question is, what exactly is my issue right now? There's, there's, there's nothing about this. So just, yeah, just, can you just talk a little bit about that, the, this starting point for people? who are, The starting who are, point is customers. That's true in lean always. Where do you start? You start by, first of all, the belief that happy customers makes everything else good. In other words, it creates profit. It creates good jobs. It creates enough money to to pay for good jobs. It creates a better community. So you think about customers first. How do I provide them with, how do I solve a problem of theirs? How do I do it at high quality? How do I make sure I make enough money to sustain my business over time. Again, if you go back to AWS, even if you have a little skepticism, they I do not have any skepticism on AWS. If you yeah. look at AWS, they do not price. They do not price to have the highest price you can have. A team that puts out a service is got to understand their costs so that they do not charge too little and lose money. And so that they do not charge too much. Because you're not supposed to make too much profit either. You're supposed to delight customers. That's the goal. And if you charge more than you really need to, then you're reducing the delight of the customers. So this focus on customers is where, where all of the sustaining revenue comes from. And if you don't have a long-term view of how do I create um, something that customers want, how do I create a customer, that's what what was it Drucker said? The primary purpose of a business is to create customers. Um, how do I make customers, how do I find out what it is that they care about? How do I solve their problems in a way that they say, wow, that was, that's really cool. If you focus on that, 
everything else follows. And then if you focus on problem solving, okay, there's two things you focus on, or three actually. One is customers, one is problem solving. And I'm of the opinion that solving one thing at a time is way better than solving 10 things a little bit, partially all, you know, take the biggest problem and kill it and take the next one and so on. You make more progress that way. And if you focus on flow, doing it in a rapid flow rather than with build-ups of inventories of information. If you do those three things, the rest comes. You get some tools, you get some other, other things that you might want to do, but the things you're trying to do is have really delighted customers, have, um, uh, what was the second one I said? Third one was flow. Problems. Oh, Problem-solving problem is essential to lead with lean manufacturing you solve process problems with lean in product development you solve the problem of what should the product do what should it be you're constantly spending the entire development time asking those questions what should my product be what should it do how do i put it together how do i solve the problem so i can deliver a fantastic problem to customers the entire development process is a problem solving process and um and you want to do it with flow. Focus on customers done with flow. The underlying principle here is respect for people. Wasting people's time, whether it's customer's time or your colleague's time, is disrespectful. All of the wastes are different ways of disrespecting people's capacities, abilities, and efforts. All of the wrong products that are delivered is disrespectful of the people whose um, benefit the product was supposed to be. Um, and the people who spend their time working the on The people that spend their time working on the on wrong thing. Disrespectful wrong. if you have practices in place that result in useless activity. Um, virtually everything in lean derives from respect people. Um, the, and that comes all the way back to, I think it was T.G. Ono said, we do two things. We um, do our work in a way that respects people and we minimize the time from when we get an order until it's in the customer's hand. And everything that produces delay, everything that um, wastes Assets is waste, and we strive to eliminate it. Right. And for people listening who are not familiar, T.G. Ono was? Sort of the Toyota guru that, that pretty much put their initial just-in-time program into place through his vision of a different way of thinking about manufacturing. And, that, and what I find interesting about that, that respect for people point is that Sometimes when I've mentioned lean in, in a business context, people have, you know, their, their sort of hearts are sunk and, and they're, oh God, you know, that's just relentless, you know, focus on efficiency and, and no wonder all these Japanese people commit suicide because it just feels so terrible to be, you know, subjected to such a, such a process. And, and yet, of course, that couldn't be further from the truth, right? It, it, in its essence, is about respect for people, first and foremost. Well... I have to admit, there have been some extraordinarily bad things done in, under the banner of lean. Um, not the way I think about lean, not the way that uh, the originators of, of 
the term coming from MIT thought about lean, not the way that Toyota, where they got their ideas, thought about lean at all. But um, you can take a high-level term and you can mislabel it and say, oh, this gives us efficiency. We're going to have, you know, we're going to do things faster and therefore we're going to get stuff done better, forgetting about the quality part of it. Or you can say we're going to be more efficient, forgetting about the respect for people part of it. So it is possible under the banner of lean to do some pretty bad things. Um, and that's true on the banner of most things that have been thought of as a movement or a business way to improve business processes. There's always ways to misuse ideas and people oftentimes do and take a shallow view. Don't look at the underlying principles. Don't look at what you're really trying to achieve. So, yep, I've seen lean done badly. Definitely. Um, but when it's thought about as flow, as problem solving, and as respect for people, those three fundamental things, then, then, you know, those bad things probably are something that doesn't happen under that banner. Right. And Tom, I, you know, and I, and I think your point that it, it, it threads across all of this, this respect for people, it, even in the waste element, because I'm wasting somebody's time, right? I'm not respecting. Oh, yeah. Bad product. That's disrespect for customers. Yeah. And that's something I hadn't appreciated before. Right? Yeah, I like that. Computer systems that crash. So you go to the airport. I've done this too many times. And the computer's down, so the flight isn't going, or I'm going to miss it, or I can't check my baggage, or whatever the heck. It's happened often enough. I'm sitting there thinking, why do computer systems go down? There are computer systems out there that don't. Mm. Hmm. How come this one did? What's missing here? Yeah. So high quality products also have a sort of a, an element of respect for customers. in them. Yeah. And it's respect for people. And this people, people piece is so central because the, the other thing that you say towards the end of the book, which I like is that um, automating processes isn't something that leans about, right? Can you talk <laughs> more about why the, why it's a problem to automate processes? I love this. Because it, when you automate a process, you, you're like taking a process and pouring concrete around it and saying, we're never going to change this. Well, anything that is here today and working tomorrow for sure is going to need to be improved. If the world moves along, it's sort of like if you can't grow up with the world and move, then you're in trouble. Way too often, process automation has been take this process, assume that it's best, and automate it. And when you assume that this is the best process there is in the world and you automate it without the flexibility to constantly modify it over, the, over time and over the future, then you're taking what is almost guaranteed not to be the optimal process and say, decreeing that it is the best one. And um, instead of thinking about processes as something that continually get better. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't automation. For example, we talked about automation of detecting defects as you write code because you need your double entry bookkeeping. So people say, yeah, I'm working on automating my software testing. Turns out they're not automating the important thing, the thing that will feedback to people writing the code immediately if they don't do what the spec wants. They're automating these manual tests that test over the top of the system 
and don't actually give very much information on what caused the problem. That's the wrong kind of automation. Um, so you have to think about when you do automation, how do I do it in a manner that allows me to do the things I want to do better? Right, right. Okay. <laughs> You're right. Go. You're okay. <laughs> yeah. I think I think sitting too long has produced a leg cramp. Okay. All right. Um, well, uh, you know, maybe we've been going for a long time anyway. So, uh, you know, and I've really appreciated the, the conversation. So maybe we're starting to draw to a, a natural close anyway. Um, so for people who uh, have been interested by this conversation, I hope they have. I hope, I hope they've gained a lot from it. Um, there's the book implementing, and I'll put it on the screen for people watching. Implementing lean software development, uh, that, and we have three other books too. So any of them, <laughs> and, and, and any of them. Um, this is the one that I've read. So what are those three other books? And, and so maybe just talk a bit about the, the books that are available. And is, okay. is there a sense of where people should start? So the, the first book we were we wrote was um, lean software development and agile toolkit. It was published in 2003, so it's not a new book. Um, it's based on principles. It's become a classic and um, hasn't apparently gotten particularly old. The, the, then the second book we wrote was Implementing Lean Software Development. Basically, the first book had principles in, but we were not deeply into how to think about software development and lean in the same just kind of knew at it when we wrote the book. So we wrote about principles. Implementing is a little bit more about things that you might do. But remember, that was written in 2005 or six. Again, over a decade old. Anything in software that's a decade old is kind of old. Um, then we wrote in 2009 a book called Leading Lean Software Development. And it talks about leadership and why it's important and different kinds of leaders. And then in 2012-13, we released a book called The Lean Mindset. And it's thinking about how do you think when you think about lean. Um, talk, some of the stuff that we talked about was um, uh, in, our, in our talk today about companies focusing on value to customers rather than shareholder value. Those kinds of concepts are in the last book. And then we have a, a blog post where there's more stuff being written on, on occasion, which is uh, leanessays.com. Leanessays.com. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's been fascinating for me. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Um, I feel like I've been taught. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. We enjoyed it too. Good. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll put the links to all of those books uh, in, the, in the description for the show. Uh, all right. Just, just remains to, for me to thank you for your time and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Well, thank you for the interview. Thank you. Thank you. See you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.